2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Let's read the text together. This is what the word of the Lord says. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, for I did regret, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that, you're, that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are thankful again today that we can come and sing your praise. Lord, thank you that we do have the promise of life eternal where we will sing for 10,000 years. And Lord, then it will seem as if we just begun to sing. Lord, we're so grateful for the ocean of eternal life with you. Thank you for taking us into your favor. Thank you for redeeming us and bringing us to your side. Thank you that you've given us eternal life. And thank you that, Lord, we have life in your name. Thank you that it's only because of the merits of your Son, Jesus, and everything that He has done for us, Lord, that we can have such a great and marvelous and wondrous hope. What a marvelous hope we have. Father, I pray that you would teach us today something of the beauty of godly sorrow. Help us to recognize and help us to know that uh, you often use sorrow for your purpose in our lives. Lord, not only to convert us and to bring us into fellowship with Yourself, but Lord, all the Christian life long, You are convicting us and confronting us and producing in us godly sorrow so that we might know something of the sweet satisfaction of true and genuine repentance. Lord, we thank You for working in our lives. Thank You that You love us. Thank you, God, that you are committed to your people today. Well, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I pray that you would use your word today. Father, we long for encouragement. We long to be ministered to by your word and to have it applied to us in a powerful, in a fresh, in a new and living way. Thank you for your word, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the subject of today's uh, sermon is, as I mentioned in my prayer, the beauty of godly sorrow. The beauty of godly sorrow. You know, today uh, in, the, in the church, sadly, uh, the subject of brokenness and sorrow and repentance really has fallen on hard times. Um, if you've not read Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity, I encourage you to pick up a copy and read it because there he details how that the church has really lost its grip on what it means to 
be broken, what it means to experience godly sorrow according to the will of God, which is precisely what Paul is talking about here. We live in a society, after all, that tells us that being sorrowful, that being ashamed is bad, and that you are to rid yourself of shame at all cost, and that what uh, you should be after is self-esteem, is that uh, the goal of life is for you to feel good about yourself, to think that uh, uh, you're a good person, and that all of the resources that you will ever need for life reside within you. But you see, this is precisely the opposite of what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow is the confession that we need something we don't have. Godly sorrow is the confession that we are sinful, that we have erred, that we have gone astray. As Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, not blessed in those who have self-esteem. Blessed are the poor in spirit, which means that you are blessed if you recognize and you confess your own bankrupt spiritual nature before God. And that's why it's so important to get a grip on this, that oftentimes in the Christian life, the way up is down. The way to greater worship and exaltation is first to recognize your own depravity and your own wretchedness and your own lack in your own need, that you are poor, miserable, naked before God. And that's the way to have true, I think, true and genuine communion with God, true fellowship with God, true satisfaction in God. But let me begin by describing what I think Paul is getting at here with the, the, the issue of sorrow, of what I call the beauty of godly sorrow, by just kind of describing several features of it. First of all, Godly sorrow is produced by genuine conviction. That's our first point. Look at verse 8 there again. He says, he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Now, verse 11 is really going to expand on what this sorrow looked like, what this repentance is. He's going to go on to talk about what it looked like. So he fills it out there in verse 11. But here, suffice it to say that he introduces this whole issue of the Corinthians' repentance, this genuine godly sorrow. And he begins by, by uh, showing us that it begins with conviction, that his letter, if you would, caused conviction in them. Whatever this letter was, it was severe, no doubt. It was stern. It was convicting. It, was, um, it, it caused brokenness in the church. Paul was really putting his thumb on sinful issues and issues that the church had gone astray about, and he's, he's convicting them, and he's not afraid to do that. He's not afraid to cause them sorrow. Paul doesn't, he doesn't regret this either. Notice, he doesn't regret the fact that he caused them sorrow. He says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it for a little while. But see, this is the complete opposite, wouldn't you say, of what so much of the church is doing today. You walk into a church, and the first thing on their mind is to make you feel as good as you can about yourself not to convict you, not to confront you, not to bring conviction of sin, but to bring you to a place where you feel like you are number one. Whereas, you know, I've said so often, 
You know, you are the apple of God's eye. You know, God is following you on Twitter. He watches your YouTube videos, and he can't wait to see what you're going to post on Facebook. He's your cosmic cheerleader. That's a totally man-centered worldview. But because Paul has a God-centered worldview, his aim is first and foremost the glory of God in the church, the glory of God in the purity of the church, and that's what he's seeking to do. So he confronts them, but let's not um, confuse this with condemnation. Paul has already stated earlier in the book that he is not seeking to condemn them. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference between loving confrontation and condemnation. Loving confrontation is aimed at genuine salvation, genuine repentance. And therefore, we can expect in the Christian life for God to confront us, to convict us, and to bring deep brokenness over sin. Matter of fact, there are two aspects of this in the, in the Christian life. There is what, what is known as corrective discipline of the church, and there's also formative. And in your life, we know what corrective discipline is all about. Corrective discipline is all about church discipline, maybe even excommunication, if that's what needs to take place. But formative discipline is that which God is actively doing in your life by shaping you, molding you, conforming your mind, conforming your conduct, causing you to be brought more and more into conformity to His Word. That's what it is. And we should not despise God's discipline in our lives, right? The author of Hebrews points this out. He says, he says don't forget this exhortation that as sons, God will discipline us either correctively or formatively. Do you sometimes feel like your sanctification hurts? Does it sometimes feel like, do you resonate with Calvin's estimation of the Christian life, that it is a lifelong agonizing process? Oh, it certainly is, and we shouldn't be surprised, but we should also not, dis- we should also not think lightly of it. The author of Hebrews says that in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. He says, don't regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. Don't esteem it as something unimportant. So he goes on to encourage us as well. Don't faint when you are reproved by him. He says, don't faint that you are reproved by him because God is not seeking to harm us He's not seeking our harm at all. He is seeking our holiness. And that's why God confronts us. And that's why God corrects us. And that's why God convicts us. Because He wants holiness in us. He wants holiness in us. In fact, God's discipline is a symbol of His love. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. If you're, you know, if you're skating along the Christian life with no conviction at all, no conviction of sin, no conviction in your conscience, then you might wonder, are you really a son? Are you really a daughter? Does the Spirit of God really reside within you? This is all sort of characteristic of a true and genuine work of God in a person's heart. True and genuine repentance. I'm reminded of what Jesus told the church there in Revelation 3. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. But beyond God correcting us, 
He is also shaping us, as I said. He is forming us. He is conforming us into the image of His Son. Let me just give you a few scriptures on this. We've already looked at one in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, we are all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. That's the whole aim of your sanctification. That is the whole aim of this agonizing process is that you are being transformed into a certain image. And what is that image? Well, I think it's captured in Paul's words in Galatians 4, 19, when he tells the church there, I am in labor, like labor pains. I am in labor until, I'm in la- I, I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. You see, that's the beauty of sanctification. Sanctification as a goal It has an object. It has a pattern. And all sanctification is Christ-likeness. That's the whole purpose of it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every aspect into Him who is the head, even Christ. That's the same language, just spoken in a different way. He's saying, look, the more and more you grow, the more and more you progress in your sanctification, you should be filling up in every aspect that Christ is like. You are to take on more and more of His attributes in your own life. There ought to be more and more evidence that Christ is in you. More holiness, more gentleness, more love, more sacrifice, more kindness, and more truth. In Romans chapter 8, he says it plainly. This is what God has chosen us for. This is what God has predestined us for. He has predestined us to be conformed into what? The image of His Son. This is what we were chosen for. We were chosen for the purpose of holiness. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, we were were predestined for this very thing, to be holy and blameless before Him. In love, God predestined us for that purpose. The goal of conviction is therefore conformity. That's the whole purpose of it. And that was Paul's desire. You remember Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, Look, I long to know him. I long to be with him. And he says, I long to be conformed to his likeness, the likeness of his death, so that I might attain to the resurrection of Christ. And so the first thing is that Paul was not afraid. He did not regret confronting them. He did not regret causing them sorrow. And the reason why is also because he knew it was just temporary. Conviction was not an end in and of itself. Sorrow, the godly sorrow that he produced in them, was not an end in itself. It had a a goal. There was a purpose for it. And now let's get more towards that purpose. And that's another aspect of what godly sorrow looks like. It results in this genuine repentance. Look at that. He says in verse 9, the first part there, verse 9, he says, I now rejoice... Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. As he's going to go on to say, being sorrowful is not enough. 
It is not enough to acknowledge your guilt. It's not enough to acknowledge your sin. It's not enough to feel bad about something that you did or something that you're doing. It has to be more than that. There has to be a change. There has to be a a, a repentance that flows out of this godly sorrow. But now, see this, that he begins with exuberance. He says, I now rejoice. I now rejoice. So he moves from his present state of joy and to this description of what sorrow is all about, what it's all for. It's for the purpose of genuine repentance. The progression is sort of tricky, but it's also sort of plain. Paul does not rejoice in their sorrow. We got that. He says, not that you were made sorrowful, but he does rejoice in their sorrow. He says, but that you were made sorrowful. You see that? And obviously, this is because godly sorrow is followed by genuine repentance. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Because Paul is a minister of joy. Listen, he desires to see nothing less than the church's joy, the church's edification. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 24. I am a fellow worker with you for your joy. Paul is not going to stop until he sees the the church delighting in God, until he sees the church possessing true saving joy. That's what he wants for this church. In verse 3, he says it again. He says, I don't speak to condemn you. Bearing his heart, this is the whole motive of his heart. He says, I don't speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. But yet, as a new covenant minister of God, we've already seen this in chapter 3. He says, I have great boldness of speech. Great boldness of speech. He's not afraid to confront. Too many churches today are afraid to confront. Too many pastors are afraid to offend people in their church. They're afraid to correct the things that are in error. They're afraid to confront people. And I've seen this over and over. And glossing over sin in the church or a problem in the church, they just rather ignore it than to deal with it. And this is uh, on all sorts of different levels, you know, all sorts of different levels, this this type of lack of confrontation takes place. And it's ultimately just a fear of man. Well, Paul didn't have a fear of man. Paul wasn't afraid of his people. He wasn't afraid to confront them because he was pursuing what was good for them. Like a loving father, he was disciplining them in order to bring them into conformity to Christ. What could be better for them than that? In the case of the Corinthians, because they had erred, Such joy could only be restored through repentance. They needed repentance. And whatever this letter was, it makes me wonder, it keeps me up at night. What was this letter that he wrote and what did it contain? Whatever it contained, it was certainly severe. But whatever it contained, it produced a a, a penitent heart. It produced godly sorrow. Now, look, this letter has been called the severe letter because Paul was stern with them. It's also been called the sorrowful letter because it produced sorrow in them. And it's also been called the letter of tears because it caused Paul here, who is like a a broken-hearted pastor, to weep over his people. 
Matter of fact, that's what he says if you look back, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, but out of much affliction and anguish of, anguish of heart, he says, I wrote to you with many tears. Many tears. How many pastors are in tears over the sanctification of his people? Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. These are important words because Paul's ministry is being undermined. These are important words because Paul's apostolic authority has been threatened. That's the whole crux of the issue. But now let's get to this issue of repentance. What is repentance? He says, quite plainly, you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Well, the word repentance, like many of the other words, like I said, is really not a popular term. You know, you could probably go to quite a few evangelistic meetings. You can go to big, large outreaches, crusades. And I would venture to say that the word repentance may not even be mentioned. You might hear words like, you need to get close to Jesus. You might hear words like, you need, you need to accept Christ. You might hear words like, you need to receive Him into your heart. But oh, how many times the word repentance is overlooked. But the, the, the word repentance is exactly what godly sorrow produces, and it is, it is in keeping with genuine salvation. It's amazing. In evangelism, we want to see salvation. But we oftentimes fail to mention that you need to repent. Well, not in this church. <laughs> we definitely mention that here. But so many people don't. You know, it's breathtaking how many people just simply will not tell somebody they need to repent. But the word repentance is amazing, isn't it? It's, uh, the Greek word is metanoia. It's a compound word of two words. One, the word meta is a preposition, which means to change. There's an alteration. And the other one is noose, which is the word for mind. So in other words, what he's talking about is that there needs to be a change of mind. Think back to your own conversion. There was a definite change of mind. You had a certain perspective. It was a man-centered perspective. You were the captain of your own ship. You were the, the god of your own universe. You, were, you did whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, and no one was going to tell you else, you know, otherwise. But you had a change of mind. All of a sudden, you found yourself agreeing with the Word of God. You found yourself agreeing with the law of God, that you were guilty and that you were in need of grace and that you were in need of forgiveness. And that's exactly what these Corinthians realized. They came to recognize that they needed grace, as we'll see. Repentance is to be celebrated because it means that there is a, there's a complete alteration of attitude. Your attitude, your disposition towards God has been changed. And in this case, there's been a change with regards to the sin and the error that the Corinthian church had committed. But there's also an alteration in activity. So there's an alteration in attitude and an alteration in activity. Look at verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11 here sort of describes this activity. He says, for behold, what earnestness this very thing. Now that's getting to the disposition. There's been a heart change, an attitude change. There, there's been a total different disposition within them now. 
They're earnest about something good. They're earnest about this thing, this thing, this getting right with Paul, this making things right with him. He says, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. Isn't that amazing? It was like Zacchaeus. You had to go beyond. You had to go out of the, out of the way to make things right. That's what true repentance produces. It results in genuine genuine renewal of the heart. And the reason I mentioned that this also has to do with our Christian life is because he's talking to Christians. He's not, this is not repentance unto salvation. They're not becoming Christians here, but these are believers that are in need of repentance. And repentance brings about spiritual renewal, and there's just a sweet satisfaction that comes from the beauty of repentance, the beauty of godly sorrow, repentance unto salvation. You can see this, for example, in Acts chapter 3. There's Peter preaching a sermon. He's at uh, Solomon's portico in the temple, and he's preaching to the Jews that they need to repent because they've got blood on their hands. No doubt their conscience smites them as he goes on to accuse them in chapter 3 of putting to death the prince of life, of murdering the Messiah. He says to them, therefore, repent. This is Acts 3.19. And return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And isn't that true with us? When we repent, we experience the sweet presence of the Lord washing over us, cleansing our conscience and our mind and our heart. And that's exactly what the Corinthians needed. They needed forgiveness. They needed to be vindicated. They needed to be, to, to be made innocent again in the matter. This was a scandalous situation. A church planted by an apostle out of step with their pastor, who is an apostle, and siding with people who are not apostles, siding with people that are against the Apostle Paul. And he confronts them, and he writes them a letter confronting them in their divisive and their, and their, and their unfaithfulness to him. As so many commentaries have pointed out, this is especially important because to go away from Paul was to go away from the gospel. To go away from the Apostle Paul was to go away from the apostolic tradition this is big. This is kind of mirroring what's going on in Galatians. They're ready to abandon Christ. And Paul is saying here, in the, almost in the same token, that they themselves were on the brink of disaster. But let's go on talking about this godly sorrow. The third thing is that it accords with the will of God and with genuine salvation. You see this at the, the second half of verse 9 there in 10. He says, For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So two things that he does here. Number one, he roots this godly sorrow with the very will of God. 
Matter of fact, the word will is not even in the text. It just literally means according to God. But what does that mean? It means it's in harmony with God. It's in keeping with God. And so then translations and grammars try to flesh that out and say something like in keeping with God's purpose, according to His will. All of those are acceptable translations. But you know, today, so many people would think that sorrow is not God's will. It's never God's will for you to be sorrowful. It's never, it's never God's will for you to be ashamed of anything. No, sometimes it is. Sometimes God brings that sorrow down upon you so that you will be forced to repent, so that you will see your error, and so that you will flee to the cross, flee to Christ, flee to God for deliverance, for deliverance. Sorrow is God's tool, we can say, to bring about genuine repentance. And Paul also points out this in this passage. He says here that the reason for this was so that they might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now, why is he saying that? I think the reason that he's saying that is to clear, once again, to clear his name. To say, look, through the apostolic ministry, they were not deficient in anything. They did not suffer loss in anything. Maybe to see a a parallel passage to this, turn to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, because it's, it's very similar to the context here. Again, wanting to show them that the benefits that came from his ministry and the fact that he had caused them no harm. He says in verse 1, says, working together with him, that is God, Paul saw himself as a fellow worker with God. He says, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's huge. By going away from Paul and away from the apostles, they are on the brink of receiving the grace of God in vain. In other words, they're on the brink of apostasy. That's the way that Paul sees it. And he says, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In Paul's perspective, his ministry was evidence that salvation had dawned. That that the eschatological redemption of God had come upon them. That this was the acceptable time, the day of salvation that the prophets had predicted, and it came in his ministry. And look at how he clears his ministry. Verse 3, he says, giving no offense, no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, in everything, we are commending ourselves as servants of God. We are, Paul is just stressing that he was their servant. He was God's tool to bless them, not to harm them, not to curse them. Not only was their sorrow evidence that God was at work within them, but it was also evident that salvation was at work within them. Look at verse 10 again. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Just amazing what he does here. And so it's almost as if Paul is moving from the specific situation with the Corinthians, and now he's going to support what's going on there with this general overarching principle dealing with genuine 
repentance and godly sorrow. That's what he does. Now, first he deals with godly sorrow. There's two things that he's going to deal with here, godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. First, godly sorrow. And the first thing he points out is that godly sorrow is without regret. Godly sorrow, oh, excuse me, he says, godly sorrow produces repentance without regret. So godly sorrow leads to a certain kind of repentance. There's two types of repentance. There's godly repentance and there's worldly repentance. Godly repentance is, is described with these words, without regret. Now, what does that mean? The commentators, there's a feverish debate on exactly what this means because it's not quite clear. Is this word regret modifying repentance or is it modifying something else like salvation? Which grammatically, it could go either way. But I think, naturally speaking, it does seem to modify repentance. That's the closest antecedent, and I think that that's what he's modifying there. So Paul is basically saying, look, that genuine repentance is characterized in this way, that when there's genuine repentance, there is no remorse for that repentance. There's no regret for that repentance. You don't regret the fact of having repented, in other words. You don't take back, verse 11, you don't take back that earnestness. You don't take back that vindication, that making right what is wrong. You don't regret doing it, in other words, doing it. Repentance without regret means that you refuse to backtrack on the fact that you have acknowledged and you have forsaken your sin. And we know that this is the opposite of what certain people in the Bible, like Judas, like Demas, like Esau, had done. Esau, who had sold his birthright for a bowl of soup and then went back and sought a blessing again, but he could not repent because he only sought it with worldly sorrow. And that's the other aspect of this. He, only, he, just, he doesn't just point out godly repentance, godly sorrow, but he also points out the sorrow of the world, the sorrow of the world. Paul's reason for pointing this out is really to show them the difference, that what happened in them was genuine, what happened to them was saving, but what happens in the world so often is not genuine. I mean, maybe you can come up here today and give us a story of how prior to your true conversion, you had all sorts of nights when you repented of your sin, when you were sorry for the things that you did, when you, you sat in bed weeping at night or in your car, or you were sorrowful for something that you had done to somebody. But there was no change. That's the whole mark of genuine repentance. It leads to transformation. You have a transformed life. And if there's no transformed life, there is no genuine repentance. It's that simple. How many people have told us before, oh, I've done that. Yeah, I, I, I acknowledge God. I, I respect the man upstairs. I love God. I want to be religious. I, I think I am spiritual. But then when you look at their lives, there is no transformation. There's no love for Christ. There's no faithfulness in the church. There's no service. There's no spiritual gifts. There's no fruit of the Spirit. There's no holiness. That's the whole problem with it. John MacArthur pointed this out about worldly sorrow. He says, the sorrow of the world, remorse, wounded pride, self-pity, unfulfilled hopes, has no healing power. 
It's not enough, therefore, just to feel those things. He goes on. There is no healing power, no transformation, no saving or redeeming capability. It produces guilt. It produces shame, resentment, anguish, despair, depression, hopelessness, and even, as in the case with Judas, death, but no genuine salvation. Therefore, it is imperative that we understand the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, because one leads to life and the other one leads to death. And the difference is this, is that with godly sorrow, there's transformation, there's a radical renewal, there's a change of mind, there's a change of heart, there is an actual difference in the person affected by the Spirit of God Himself. And let me back up here for a second. It may seem that what I'm talking about is telling somebody, you've done it wrong. You did it wrong. You didn't do it right. And therefore, this whole Christian thing didn't work out for you. But you, see, you know as much as I know that repentance is not anything of yourself. You can't manufacture it. You can't create it. You cannot produce it in your own strength any more than Nicodemus can produce the second birth. Jesus tells Nicodemus, it's like the wind. Oh, you see the effects and you hear the wind, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It blows wherever it wishes. And above all, repentance, true, genuine repentance is a gift from God. It is a gift of God. It has been granted to us to believe. It has been given to us to repent. It is the gift of God, salvation, grace, faith, all of it. It's a gift of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And when you repent, there is life. Maybe a picture of this is David. Who can forget David's scandalous sin? But David is a perfect picture of the, of the fact that, look, repentance led to life. It led to life, albeit physical life, but it's a picture of life nevertheless. 2 Samuel 12, 13, you remember this? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. What a beautiful picture of true repentance. Acknowledge your sin, forsake your sin, confess your sin, and then God will take away your sin and you will live. You will live. God grants repentance to whomever He wills. Repentance is a miracle. I believe it is a miracle. It is a phenomenon that is supernatural. It is not, it cannot be fabricated, it cannot be manipulated, it cannot be produced in the power of the flesh, or else it's not repentance. That is what's so wrong with so many of these different type of evangelistic outreaches and crusades is that they put on emotional music, stir you up emotionally, and then ask you to do something like walk down into a baseball field. And therefore, you can have full assurance that you're saved now because you walked down all those stairs. You went onto the field. You prayed a 10-second prayer, and the fireworks came out, and the people clapped, but then you went right back out into the world and continued to live exactly the way you, can, you were living prior to coming there. I mean, it's just false conversion. 
is an epidemic in the church. Pastors are so quick to give assurance. I heard of a brother that was struggling really bad with his assurance. He was struggling with whether or not he had genuinely been saved. And he went to his pastor, and his pastor patted him on the back and said, that's just the devil messing with you. You're a Christian. That is so dangerous. I would say, if you're a Christian, then you will have evidence in your life that you're a Christian. Is there a hunger for God? Is there a love for the Word? Is there conformity to the Word of God? In other words, is there holiness where there wasn't holiness? Has there been a break with sin? You were a fornicator. You're not a fornicator anymore. You were a thief. You're not a thief anymore. You were a murderer. You're not a murderer anymore. I've spoken to murderers in the church. That might be the most shocking thing I say all day, right? I had a guy came to me and told me how many people he killed. He was a game banger. He said it was nothing for me just to go up to someone, just shoot him in the head. And, and I don't know who he is or where he went, but I told him that what he needed to do is repent. And part of his repentance was go and turn yourself in for what you've done. Needless to say, I never saw him again. If you murdered, you don't murder anymore. If you steal, you don't steal anymore. Let him who is immoral not be immoral anymore. And that is the genuine fruit of repentance. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean sinlessness. It doesn't mean that you may not struggle with sin or something to that nature. But it does mean that there has been a break with sin. There has been a once and for all break with the world. You have been, the, the, the theologians say it this way, there has been a definitive sanctification, a once and for all aspect to you being holy, where you no longer live the way you did. And this is a gift of God. It's not something you just tack on to your bucket list. There, I did that. I got right with God. Now let me go on with my life. No, if you got right with God, it will change your life. It will redefine your life. It will transform your life. And that, too, is a gift of God. Brothers and sisters, that's why we pray to God for repentance. That's why we pray to God. We don't pray to our neighbor. We don't pray to our family members. You don't pray to your children. You don't pray to, to man. You pray to God. You don't try to manipulate somebody's will. You don't try to manipulate them into a prayer. You know, when I first got saved, I thought that's what you do. You just get somebody to say the magic prayer, and that's it. So I got my mom. She was like my guinea pig. I, said, I told her, I said, Mother, all you got to do is pray this prayer. This is, this is it. You pray this prayer, that's it. You're done. I really believe this because this is what I was initially taught. And boy, how foolish that was. I can't tell you how many people I converted in my first six months as a Christian. <laughs> I got them to pray that prayer. But it was all for nothing because salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is a genuine, supernatural gift of God and His sovereign grace when He imparts it to a sinner. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, it says, He is the one whom God exalted at his right hand, a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11 verse 18 says this, 
When they heard this, they were quieted down and they glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles, leading to life. You see that? When God grants repentance, it leads to life. When man brings repentance about, it leads to death. And that's the last thing that he says here. He says of worldly repentance, that he says the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world doesn't get outside of itself. The sorrow of the world goes no further than sorrow. It doesn't produce a changed life. It doesn't conform to the law of God. It doesn't love God. It doesn't obey God. It doesn't obey the gospel. It does, and it does not love the truth. 2 Timothy 2.25, by contrast, we know that repentance is a sovereign work of God. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So many people don't even want to read that verse, let alone believe it, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. After everything you've done, after all the toiling, after all the sowing, after all the watering, at the end of the day, you are not the final, you're not the final one that makes a choice. At the end of the day, you are not the final arbiter of salvation. At the end of the day, you too are dependent on God to work. Isn't that amazing? So, so much comfort can be taken in this. The first initial reaction for us is to trip out and go, wow, wow, this is the, the, if this is the, the way God works, God is sovereign, then no one will be saved. But that's not why this is written. This is written to comfort you, to assure you that salvation is in the hands of God. And it could not be in the hands of anybody else. We wouldn't want it to be. We would not want it to be so. And so, brothers and sisters, that's why we have things like church membership. We want to see, has genuine repentance taken place in the life of this individual? Or is this person just a moralist? They think coming to church is a good thing to do. And as long as you go to church, you can call yourself a Christian because that's what you do. But then you can go back and live however you want. That's why we, we emphasize church membership here because we don't want people in our church making spiritual decisions and doing spiritual things and serving in spiritual ways if they have not had this genuine work of repentance in their life. Because then what you have is unbelievers trying to be forced into a mold that they can't fit into because they don't have the right nature because they have not been renewed, where you're trying to get unbelievers to think like believers, but they have not had a renewed mind, a transformed mind, and therefore it will only erode the purity of the church. As we go on looking at this, Lord willing, next week we will get into all the various aspects of what this repentance did for them, and so really what we're looking at here is an anatomy of repentance and what it looks like. Let's pray together. Father, um, what a dire need, Lord, for us to have genuine repentance in our church. And that for every member, for everyone here, Lord, that, that we would engage in a time of self-introspection. I don't know everyone here. I don't know them personally. I don't know their heart, but you do. And they know their heart. And so, God, I pray, as I know you would have us to pray, 
I pray today, Lord, for a work of genuine repentance in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of our family members, in the lives of the people that we love, the people we pray for. Let that be a work of God and help it not to be a work of the flesh. Lord, we pray that you would purify our church and help us as much as discernment that you've given us with as much wisdom as you've given us to have a church that's pure, to have a church membership that is only filled with regenerate brothers and sisters in Christ. For your glory and for the good of your people, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.